the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Let Us Reason, a Christian-Muslim dialogue with host Al Fadi. Let Us Reason is a unique show utilizing theology, apologetics, and evangelism to reach Muslims for Christ by comparing and contrasting Christian and Muslim doctrines. And now, your host, Al Fadi. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, this is Al Fadi, and I'd like to welcome you to uh, another uh, special live stream that we're doing from our studios here, uh, just like the one that I did recently, a couple of weeks ago, with uh, our brother Jay Smith, which, by the way, due to technical difficulties, unfortunately, he couldn't join us. So and maybe things will change during the live stream, but for now, we know that he is unable to join us. That doesn't mean uh, that we cannot um, you know, proceed and continue with the topic itself. With me here in studio for the first time, uh, our brother Mel from Sneakers Corner. Mel, uh, thank you so much for making time for us, by the way. Absolutely great to be here, Alfadi. Thank you so much. And, and of course, everyone, for the benefit of those who are joining us for the first time, this is also another special way uh, for me to do both a video live stream and also an audio live stream for my podcast. So uh, for those of you who are listening to this podcast, we I want to welcome you and I want to start now the podcast, uh, Let Us Reason. Thank you, of course, for joining us. I hear a lot of uh, your feedback from the podcast alone. Wait until you see the videos, of course. We always bring in uh, amazing guests and we talk about fabulous topics. Today's topics is no exception. I intentionally called it, Will the Real Muhammad Please Stand Up? And indeed, uh, for the longest time, uh, we've always heard one side of the story about Muhammad the founder of Islam, the prophet of Islam, the one who supposedly received revelations about Islam and the Quran from a god by uh, the name Allah. And we know that he was born in 570 AD to the tribe of Quraysh in Mecca. And uh, at 621 uh, or so, he migrated north to uh, where we call Medina. And that was the beginning of the Hijra. And from 621 slash 622 until his death in six. 32, uh, he served also the second part of his ministry in Medina, and he died. And from there, we get the story, the traditional story is that the first caliph was Abu Bakr and collected the Quran for the first time, and then the second caliph was Omar uh, two years after that, because Abu Bakr served for two years and he died in 632, then Omar served for at least 12 years, and then we get the third caliph, Uthman, who is responsible for what we call the Uthmanic uh, standard or at least uh, canonized Quran. However, lately we've been finding there is a lot of holes in these narratives. A lot. Big holes. And everything that we are looking at so far, when I say we, myself here by bringing in uh, amazing uh, scholars and amazing workers as well, like Dr. J. Smith, and today, of course, uh, our brother Mel, and the work of Dan Gibson, and many others, we're beginning to see another theme that points north. And today is no exception as well. 
Once again, I want to welcome everyone to our live stream on Facebook and YouTube. And also, I want to welcome our audience who are listening to this podcast, Let Us Reason. So, Mel, who is the real Muhammad according to these new discoveries now? Well, it looks like it's not the Muhammad of the Islamic tradition. And uh, having looked at it for the past two years intensively, it seems that the, the whole story is a fiction or at least large parts of it. Who, who I think it is, is a king in Arabia called Iyas ibn Kabisa al-Tayi, a member of the Tayyaye tribe. Yeah. And uh, so that's, that's where my evidence is pointed to at, at the moment. It's not, you know, it's not foolproof, but the, the abundance of evidence points in that direction. And uh, yeah, I'm going to show you some of that evidence today. And, and thank you for pointing that out. Again, I want to mention to everyone, we are dealing with newly uh, discovered material or at least material that hasn't been touched before. Maybe it's been written about somewhere, but no one came forward to try to unpack it the way we are doing it. Now, we understand, and, and this is to the audience, we understand that today, by the way, we're doing this on December 21st, uh, 2020. Now, tomorrow, something new might come up. Uh, maybe even we'll uh, actually prove that the standard narrative is correct. We're open for all of that, but we cannot also ignore any of these findings that at least worth examining, and that's why Mill is with us here today. Now, Mill, you mentioned something interesting, uh, uh, the Ta'i tribe, and I've always grown up learning about a certain character out of the Ta'i tribe by the name of Hatim ibn Abdullah al-Ta'i, who is known to be very generous to the point that they tell you one time a guest came to his tent and he couldn't find any sheep or lamb to slaughter, so he slaughtered his horse for him. That's how generous he was. Now, supposedly, this Hatim al-Ta'i died eight years after the birth of Muhammad. And that's it. Muhammad did make reference to him in something called Musnad Ahmad a couple of times, but only talking about him through his daughter, who was a slave after supposedly Muhammad's troop went north to Iraq and captured her and also fought many of those who are supposedly non-Muslims or traditionally Christians. Yeah, it's, it's amazing that the Islamic tradition only mentions the Tayyayi just that number of times, um, considering how significant they are. It would be like writing the history of America and forgetting half of the states. That's how big a deal this is. Mm. The Tayyayi, for my reckoning was the most important uh, force in the 7th century um, at the time when Islam began. I would go so far as to say that it wasn't the beginnings of Islam, but it was the beginnings of the Taiyaye revolution. That's the way I would describe it. The sources refer to the Saracens very often, and occasionally they refer to the Taiyaye. But when we gather all the evidence together, and if you look at it in terms of like a Venn diagram, the common factor is that it all seemed to have started way up in the north, not yeah. down in, in the Hejaz, as commonly thought. Why don't you... into the, I'm sorry, Mel. Go, go ahead. I was going to say, just, just walk us through I'm, your findings. Yeah. yeah. So I went into this assuming that the Islamic tradition was true. I didn't come into it being sceptical at all. It was only when I looked at the sources that I realized actually there's something up here. And uh, the more I digged, um, the more I found that there was, there was holes in the narrative, as they say. So... How about, let's um, look at slide number one there. Okay, yes, and everybody see can see that slide right now. Okay, so, you know, a common assumption is that um, Arabia is essentially the same as Saudi Arabia, but 
Um, it might surprise many that an area in northern Iraq, Syria and Turkey had been referred to as Arabia a long time ago. Pliny the Elder, for example, in uh, first century, refers to Osroin and Kamajin as Arabia. Um, now, I don't know if you can make out where those are, but they are basically where Syria, Turkey and northern Iraq meet. So it's uh, significant that that was what people thought of when in, in the first century as Arabia. If we move on to the second slide then, we see that in the later part of the first century and into, well, actually into the second century really, the, the Romans then designated um, three different regions as Arabia. So we have the northern part, which was designated as Arabia Petraea, Yep. Um, and it was called Petraea after, obviously, Petra. That's right, yep. And then uh, down in the south, we have Arabia Felix, or Happy Arabia. And then in the middle, they term that large area of Arabia simply Arabia Deserta, abandoned or uninhabited Arabia, for obvious reasons, because it was largely a desert. And, right. and it didn't have too many occupants in it. So really, if you look at those... Those three regions, the most significant really was Arabia Petraea and Arabia Felix. The, the bit in the middle was a lot of um, empty space, really, with not a lot of inhabitants. Okay. Wonderful. And, and I can see that the, um, the scholar you're referring to here is Dr. Robert Kerr, uh, whom I, by the way, had, had a number of his uh, scholarly articles. So we're not talking just uh, a casual person here, someone with a great reputation in Islamic studies. Absolutely. And uh, the map that I've used from a paper, I don't remember the name of the paper, but he was talking about the Aramaic underpinning to the Quran. And he spoke at, at length about the fact that the, the script that was being used was that of Arabia Petraea. In effect, uh, it was a Nabataean script. Um, Interesting. Whereas, whereas way down south... Um, the script that was used up to the 6th century was the Sabaic script, which was developed in Yemen. Yes. Had they used that script, they wouldn't have had all of these problems with diacritical marks because the script could carry all the sounds uh, with very distinct letters. So they could have easily avoided a lot of the pain if Islam had began where it said it began in the Hijaz. So it's a, an interesting little detail. Wonderful. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, Saba'iyan comes from also the kingdom of Saba down south in, in uh, Yemen. So, I mean, let's ask the first question. What is the significance of what you just mentioned right now? Well, the significance is that the, the story that we're told that, um, that Islam began down in the Hejaz is not backed up by the evidence. So there's, there's so many different levels to this. First of all, all of the action was ha happening up in the north, mm -hmm. in the buffer zone between the Byzantine um, west and the Persian east. So that's where it was all happening. Um, what's also significant is the sources that were used in the Quran, you know, various um, Syriac stories and so on. That is found up there in the north. Um, the words that are used in the Quran as well, the religious vocabulary in particular, are Aramaic in origin. And we have the script, which um, was developed in the Nabataean region, right. which is the bottom left-hand corner of Arabia Petraea, as you see on the map there. So it's all significant. 
the political dynamic that was going on was also up there. The the conflict between the uh, Gasnets in the west and the the Lakhmets in the east. So it was all happening there. It's a very significant map, and you know if we think about the Hejaz, the Hejaz was in the middle of nowhere. It wasn't central at that time. It wasn't of any importance, um, and. When we look at the, um, the, the factors that led to the creation of Islam, none of the factors that we, we find in the evidence can be found in the Hejaz. They're all way up north, and that, that's the, the most significant detail. Interesting. And of course, uh, another significance I picked on is when you say Arabia, that doesn't necessarily mean just what we call today the Arabian Peninsula. It could have been just any of the area that is known as Arabia, technically speaking, which opens the door for the possibility, yes, of things being north or somewhere different, but still in Arabia, technically speaking. Yes. Um, the people in Arabia, Petraea, some of them may have referred to themselves as uh, Aramaic, but some may have referred to themselves still as Arabs. So that identity was there as well. Um, and what we're dealing with here is uh, at least a bilingual population who spoke Aramaic and Arabic. Right. You know, some also spoke Greek as well. And this is something that we need to bear in mind. It's, um, right. These are very important details. Excellent. Uh, do you have anything else to show beside uh, this, uh, this map? Okay, so if you go to slide three. So now we're on to the, um, the Tayeye, a very, very interesting tribe, very interesting group. Um, their name comes from uh, Tay or Tayi. Um, in the second century, the Tayi migrated from the Yemen to the northern Arabian mountain ranges of Jabal Shamar. It was originally called Jabal Tay after the tribe yeah. that went now, there. And I'm going to help you with the Arabic. Jabal Tayi, uh, uh, and now it's called Jabal Shamar, whereas there's a huge tribe called uh, uh, Shamar, basically. Yeah. yeah. Now, I don't know if that tribe is connected to the Taiyei, I presume they, these are descendants from that same tribe. Interesting. Um, and notice on the map there, the, the area in dark brown, that's the the old Nabateen kingdom. So when they went up north, they, they situated themselves just on the doorstep, essentially, of the old Nabateen kingdom. And just as the old Nabateen kingdom was ending, the, the Taiyei moved up north. So it's very significant. Okay, so we moved right. on to... The next slide, then. Right. Right. So in the 6th century, then, we have the Fasad War, which split the Tayyaye. Yeah, the Fasad, by the way, is an Arabic word for fitna or for corruption, technically speaking. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So so this is not to be confused with the fitna of the uh, 7th century. Right. The Umayyad and the Abbasides also. Correct. Yeah. 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 So members of its Judilla branch became Christian and migrated to Syria and allied with the Ghassanids, as you can see on the map there. In, yeah, in known red. as the Ghassassina in Arabic. That's right. Yeah. And then the Goth branch remained in Jabal Tay. And then the Tayyay also became well established in the Lakhmid region too. So that's the, the area to the right, which is right on the doorstep to the Sassanids or the Persians. That's right. And this one is called the Manadira, Al-Manadira, which is also another big tribe. Yeah. Yeah. So essentially the role that uh, these two populations played here is that of a buffer zone. 
So the Ghassanids were the um, the fighters essentially for on behalf of the Byzantines, whereas the Lakhmids fought on behalf of the Persians. And so they earned a lot of their money from that. And the Tayaye were a subgroup within the population. They were mm-hmm. a significant group. Um, and, you know, they did their own thing. They weren't totally subject to the, the Ghassanids or the Lakhmids. And uh, eventually there came a point where they, they got a little bit big for their boots um, in the 7th century. So if we move on to the next slide, which is slide number five, it's interesting that in the 7th century, Mesopotamia became known as Tashkistan, or Land of the Tay. This is very significant. And you can see that in the middle of the map there inside the red. Um, yeah, I mean, we have people that have that last name, Tashkandi, by the way. I mean, it's, a, uh, it's a named after the area. Yeah. Wow, yeah. yeah. So that area there, as you can see, is between the, the rivers Euphrates and the river Tigris. Right. And, uh, so that's really the, the center of the action, um, as, as we'll see as we go on. Um, so that's where I would place E.S. Ibn Kapisa, who I think is the real protagonist. Now, who Which, mentioned first about Ilyas, by the way? I mean, what source uh, you found this reference to? And why do you think this Ilyas is Muhammad? I mean, I'm just throwing a teaser out there now. Um, I believe um, Al, Al-Baduri, if I've got his name right, in the 8th or 9th century. Um, and all, uh, he refers to him. He's also uh, mentioned in Al-Tabari. So these are quite late sources. Um, I'm still trying to find much earlier sources, but the the way that he is written about in those sources seems to be very straight and historical. Um, but obviously, I'm keen to find um, earlier references to him. Wonderful. And then we'll get to the next question later, maybe in the second half of our uh, live stream, about why why do we see a connection between the two characters, basically. Yeah. yeah keep going. I'm sorry. Okay. So if we turn to slide number six. This will give you a good idea of the sphere of influence in the, se- in the 7th century of the Taiyaye. So you can see that they had a huge influence in what is essentially Iraq, Syria, and Northern Arabia. And this and is the Fertile of- Crescent area, basically. Absolutely. Yeah. They knew where um, it was easy to live. You know, that's the area you want to be because you can, you can grow your crops. You can um, Exactly. You can herd your uh, your animals. You don't want to be living in the middle of a desert, struggling to survive. So they were s- smart people, um, right. and they knew where the money was. Right. Um, right. So what's interesting here, and it's something to note, is the fact that the Hijaz was outside its a- of its area of influence, and this is going to be important because when we look at the earliest sources that refer to Muhammad, they are not referring to the Hijaz. They're referring to the Tayyaye. And they're referring to locations inside this red circle. So that's interesting. One so of these sources, these sources that I'm going to be referring to are from the 630s. Okay. 640s and onwards. You know, these these cannot be beaten. You can't get earlier sources than these. Yeah. And in my view, the earlier the source, the better. That's right. Yeah. And of course, uh, during that time, uh, is if we will follow the traditional view, uh, during that time, we had what is called the uh, Al-Khulafa al-Rashidun, the rightly guided caliphs, technically speaking. We still don't have the Umayyads or anything like that, if we follow the traditional view. Yeah, I find that traditional view um, problematic. 
Um, I don't see the evidence of caliphs that rule this entire region at that early stage. And and that's why I'm bringing it up, by the way, because I want you to flush out this tension. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's only really with Muawiya um, in the uh, six. Oh, yeah. I'm yeah. going to say six six in the six sixties. Um, that's really when you start to see the first proper caliph who rules both in the western areas and the eastern areas. I, it's it's my view that up to that point, what you have is a lot of chieftains in different areas squabbling over their small little patch. You don't really have a a transnational um, leader at that stage. That's my view, and I think. Um, the Islamic tradition wants to um, expunge the record of all of the infighting that went on, and they want to paint these leaders as as unifiers and the, this era as mostly peaceful, when in fact it wasn't anything of the sort. Yep. So if we move to slide number seven. And just to give you a warning, we have about... Uh two more minutes before we start wrapping up the first half so just want to help okay. you uh, wrap your thoughts okay yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that's fine so a very important um, source for us is Thomas the Presbyter in 640 um, so the key bit that it says there uh, and I'll, I'll skip the date there it's, um, it talks about it happening in 634 two years after Muhammad was supposedly dead there was a battle between the Romans and the Tayyaye of Muhammad and it's interesting that it's spelt with a T at the end, in Palestine, 12 miles east of Gaza. This early source is hugely problematic. First of all, there's everything in that points to the north, the group he's associated with, the location of the event, and to a lesser degree, the source of the information. In other words, where it was written was also in the north, Mesopotamia. Um, So I think that's a very important Source That source alone destroys Islamic narrative, as far as I'm concerned, because Muhammad was never meant to have reached um, the Gaza area. He was meant to be a bit like um, Moses. Um, he saw the promised land, but never into it, entered it, and Joshua took over. But um, as we can see, he was alive and well, according to this early source, that's literally only writing um, a few years after it. Wonderful. If we have time for, If we have time for maybe one more source... Before we yeah go, go ahead uh, you know we have at, at least uh, two minutes but I need to wrap up uh, after that go ahead okay okay so maybe if we jump to uh, slide number nine so slide number nine has a nice um, map there of uh, the area and the Hispanic Chronicle of 754 says the Saracens rebelled in 618 the seventh year of the Emperor Heraclius and appropriated for themselves Syria Arabia and Mesopotamia or through trickery than through the power of their leader, Muhammad. Notice that Syria, Arabia, and Mesopotamia are Tayyaye areas. This confirms, against, again, the link between Muhammad and the Tayyaye. For me, this is really solid evidence that Muhammad is located up there in the wrong place, and we can make perfect sense of, of a rebellion happening in Syria, Mesopotamia, and Arabia if we assume that it was happening in the Taiyaye area. So it's, all of the evidence is overlapping each other. Yeah. Thank so. you. Thank you, Mel. Uh, I mean, I want you to hold your thoughts because uh, these are interesting information. I want to just quickly unpack for everybody that we are presenting to you yet again enough evidence that something is happening north. Something is originating from a northern geographical location. 
and you start putting all these pieces of the puzzle together, and you get what Jay calls, that's exactly what you get. You get something that is fascinating, and we are, speaking of Jay, we'll have Jay right after the break. So I'm going to wrap up this, uh, basically, uh, at least the first part of this uh, podcast of Let Us Reason. If you are joining us live right now on Facebook or YouTube, hang tight. We're going to take like a one-minute transition to the second part. But all that to say is that you can see why those kind of findings are extremely important. And by the way, I want to give a a huge shout out to all of you. We started a campaign to uh, have uh, basically 100 Patreon partners at the end of October. Uh, We are short now by 18 only. So thank you so much. We're looking just for more, at least 18 more to join our Patreon team. Thank you again for your love and your support. If you're joining us on a podcast, we look forward to seeing you again or, uh, you know, hopefully you'll hear us again next week because we do this weekly for the podcast. But if you're joining us live right now, please uh, hang tight for one minute to transition to the next part. Thank you again. This was the conclusion of our podcast, Let Us Reason. And we will start the second part of Let Us Reason shortly, which... For you, listening to us on radio will be next week. Thank you again. This is Al Fadi. God bless.